This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Welcome to Construction Law Today. This is a brand new project of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Over the course of our next several podcasts, I'll be interviewing a number of prominent practitioners in the area of construction law. We welcome your comments and questions about the podcast. Please let us know if you like it, if you find it useful, or any other thoughts you have on how we can improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is provided at the end of this podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Today is another first for us. This is our first international episode here on the podcast. Our guest is Roberto Hernandez from Mexico City. And our subject, broadly speaking, are construction law issues in Mexico and Latin America. More specifically, we'll be talking with an experienced Mexican construction lawyer on the differences between U.S. and Mexican law as it affects contractors and design professionals and some of the basics for American companies to know about when they're considering projects in that part of the world. Bienvenidos al podcast, Roberto. ¿Cómo estás, mi amigo? Hola, vos. ¿Cómo estás? Buen día. Oh, bueno, bueno. Oh, I guess I should tell our listeners that while Roberto is absolutely fluent in English, I am uh, somewhat less than fluent in Spanish, so we'll be doing the rest of this podcast in English. Is that okay, Roberto? That's fantastic, vos. Thank you. Great. Well, let's start a little bit with um, your educational background. It's a little bit different uh, under the Mexican system in the U.S. Tell me about your uh, education to become a lawyer. Uh, Well, I went to a university called Universidad Panamericana, which means uh, Pan American University. I had some uh, postgraduate diplomas and some specialization in administrative law and uh, private law and dispute resolution. And uh, in Mexico, there is no construction law topics or subjects in the university as there may be in the U.S. So I had to learn all these um, from experience and practice, boss. Tell us about your uh, law practice. Well, I, I, I mainly focus on three matters. First is construction law, government contracts and private contracts. The second thing that we focus is on public procurement and government contracts, of course, also related to some uh, goods and services. And the third one is anti-corruption. Matters related to integrity in connection with construction matters and public procurement and government contract matters. That issue about the impact of anti-corruption law on construction matters is something that we're going to come back to and spend a little bit of time on. But to begin, let's start at the beginning. The United States, a common law country, except for a couple of our states. Uh, Mexico is a civil law jurisdiction. Let's talk about that. Okay, so yes, as you said, we are a civil law country. Most of the difference that I find when I speak with uh, companies and colleagues from the U.S. is that we rely mostly on laws, codes, regulations, rather than case law. We have, of course, case law, but they are like certain criteria 
and they are not necessarily binding. So this means that we are very, very focused on what the law says, what the regulations say, and that means that we have to fulfill all these elements. Some colleagues from the U.S. think this is very formalistic, and it may happen, and it may be understood as very formalistic, but uh, you have to face these civil law countries. It was very interesting that you focused on formality because uh, I don't have a lot of experience, but a little of the experience that I have on construction projects in Mexico is this sort of overriding concept of formality. Uh, two questions. First, where does that come from? And, and secondarily, how does it affect typical projects? Well, we, as you know, we were a Spanish colony. So my idea is that at some point, uh, Spain had to have a control uh, over their colonies. And at some point, people should apply the regulations and codes that were part of and they were issued in Spain. Uh, so if these were not fulfilled, that was a breach of the law. And that was the only way to maintain control and organization on Mexico and the other Spanish colonies. So I think there's, that is a long tradition uh, coming from the 1600s. And later on, how does this, this affect the industry? Very much, boss. I can tell you that some people get really frustrated on how this can, you need permits, licenses, things that are not established expressly in the law and you try to do it in a different way may cause a real burden for users and practitioners. So you have to be really aware and have to be very familiar to these matters. Ultimately, you, you can solve them, and this is not a, a, a wall that it cannot be crossed, but um, it is in some way difficult to understand for many people. Roberto, could you give our listeners about a one-minute overview of the federal and state court system in Mexico? Of course. Yes, we are establishing Mexico is formed very similarly to the United States. Just as a very curious thing, let me tell you that the formal name for Mexico is United States of Mexico. Yes. So we are we are in some way a copy in a political way of the United States. We have 31 states, Mexico City, which is the capital, and therefore we have federal regulations that apply to the whole country. This means the 31 states and Mexico City, and we have local regulations, which means that apply only to the states or to Mexico City. And depending on the matter, you will apply either federal or local regulations, and you go to federal or local courts or administrative authorities. Let's talk a little bit about construction contracting. Now, my understanding in Mexico is that it would be very rare to see any kind of form contract like an AIA document or consensus docs uh, document. Yeah. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. We don't have model contracts. This is something that many people around the world ask why don't we have model contracts? And I see this as a, a common practice in Latin America, because as you say, AIA or consensus are local and very industry-oriented in the U.S., but we don't have something similar here. Contracts are made on a bespoke basis, and also uh, the government contracts are, have like a kind of model 
they can be modified according to each contracting entity. So you're right. Now, my presumption would be then that among the lawyers who practice uh, in this field of law in Mexico, you as a group of lawyers are trading similar contracts so that when you start on a project, if it's with a firm that you know, you're going to see a contract that maybe you've seen at least some parts of before? Well, uh, this is a very curious question because we don't have like common standard templates or contracts. If if you speak with other law firms, I'm sure that every law firm would have their own kind of contracts depending of, on the clients they have been attending. For example, if they are contractors, if they are consultants, if they are architects, designers, all they have their own. And of course, every law firm and every lawyer tries to put a, on right or include whatever they have experienced. So uh, you can really tell that you can find a lot of a kind of contracts and you can learn and you can find interesting and very frustrating things from others and I'm sure from the others from, from, from one. So I think this is the way we work here. Well, let me ask you a question because that strikes me as, as very interesting. Would you see significant differences, for example, from state to state if I had a deal in Chiapas versus in Guadalajara? Would I see significant differences in the way lawyers were approaching transactions? Yeah, well, yes, because of the culture of the lawyers, but also depending on if it's a private or, for, or a government contract. If it's a private contract, each state has their own civil codes. And although this is a commercial law division, I mean, the construction law is commercial law under Mexican law, the civil codes include the regulation and construction. So you will find different approaches on the different states. Um, there are some that are very involved. For example, Guanajuato is very involved. Other are copies of the federal one. And if you speak about government contracts, you will see something similar because the government uh, procurement laws of the federation are very similar to the local ones. So you, you will find mostly differences in the way that lawyers deal with them because of the culture, the practice, the place, and that's uh, how it works. Let's talk a little bit about government contracts and public uh, procurement. What are, what are some of the uh, important concepts that uh, an American lawyer should know about that process? Well, you're going to a very, very interesting point and very important point for people that come to Mexico because um, one of the things that we have on the government contracts and government procurement is the um, idea of public order, of public interest. That means that uh, in some way, uh, public procurement and government contracts cannot be negotiated are part of a system that is very strict. I, f I see that some companies, mainly U.S. companies that come here, find very frustrating or difficult to see how to uh, work with government contracts. The reality is that if you read the law, understand the law, and are correctly guided, you can really face face it. I think that is the most important thing. The, the other one is that you cannot negotiate the contract during its term. And 
people need to find out how to justify and solve the issues regarding the modification of the contract. As all we know, there are no contracts that are absolutely perfect and don't are not modified during the course of its execution. So that is the thing. The main point is you have to be aware of the government contract regulations and procedures in order to be safe and to do the things correctly. What's the um, current business environment with the new government in Mexico? Well, it's getting a little bit slow because first, all uh, initial terms of presidential terms are slow and historically because people of the new government are starting to understand. Uh, we had a uh, decision of the president of, to cancel a mega project, $13 billion project, which was the Mexico City new airport. And that caused a lot of consequences, including the slowdown of the construction practice and industry. Um, right now, there are new projects that are coming. There is a very important trend in the peninsula, Yucatan Peninsula. There is a very big refinery. So right now, it's 2019, things are slow because of these reasons, but we expect 2020 to be more active due to these projects. We'll take a short break and be right back with more podcasts in a minute. We're back with Roberto Hernandez from Mexico City. Roberto, I'd like to talk a little bit about the process of contract administration. I've heard some things that lead me to believe that it's a pretty complicated process in Mexico. Yeah, I think it's not. It shouldn't be more complicated than in other places of the world. However, uh, for some reasons, for example, when you're speaking about government contracts, you have to be very careful on contract administration because uh, as, as we were speaking, we rely on documents. And if you don't have documents, you don't have entitlements and you don't have rights and there, you won't have payment and all these kind of things. So uh, also a cultural thing comes uh, on this boss. Uh, we Mexicans are and try to be very friendly and solve things without any disputes and writing to each other. So uh, we used to rely on the word and not everybody uh, fulfills its word. So contract administration is not by itself complicated, but the environment of, for example, writing a letter to a government contract, to a government officer or another person from Mexico could be seen as, for example, being rude. You have to do it because if you don't do it, at the end, you will not get what you want in the contract. As you were describing that, I was thinking about the fact that my American brothers and sister lawyers, as well as our English friends, uh, look very fondly on the adversary system that, that lawyers should be adversarial from as necessary. But that's not the attitude in Latin America. I, I, I've talked to other uh, lawyers in Mexico, and and they they don't like disputes. No, 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 no. And this also shows why 
there are no so much evolution and um, the dispute resolution on other kind of things like dispute boards and other kind because people fear that each dispute resolution matter creates like more contentious environment. But the reality is that uh, because we are not solving these kind of things front face to face, the issue is that the problems grow. And uh, by being passive, we don't solve the problems immediately, and we, we have to improve that. Let's talk a little bit about how American companies or other non-Mexican companies either uh, form a business entity in Mexico or establish a branch. How does that work? Uh, well, first, the first thing you have to know is that it's not as easy as it is in the U.S. as far as I understand, because here you need the presence of a notary public. And the notary public is not the figure that you have in the U.S. This is, in Mexico, the notary public, as in Latin America, is a semi-government officer to, to just to understand that it's more a public side than a private side. And therefore, in order to form a company, you need at least uh, two shareholders, um, create some bylaws, those bylaws have to be passed through the notary public. The notary public attests and witnesses and certifies that that is legal and correct. And then there is the creation. This this that is can be heard as a very fast situation is a little bit slow. First, because in order to prove that you are a shareholder, you need it by loss. For example, if you are a U.S. company and you have two two shareholders, you need the two corporate documents of the two shareholders have to be translated, apostilled, and then have to be given to the notary public. And the notary public have to review all of them, and then inform the company. So I, the, the thing that I would say is that just for our American colleagues, you have to understand that this can be a complicated informality, but at some point it is needed. You cannot do it another way. And if you prepare the things correctly and adequately, you can reduce time and costs. So th that, that is some suggestion that I would give. The um, concept of a notary public in Mexico has fascinated me. Can you describe in a little more detail what that person's role is and why it's so much different than than the administrative role that we assign to notaries. Absolutely, yes. I said a semi-government officer just to give the idea that uh, he's more than a private uh, person, but, but he's a private person. He's a lawyer, or she, he or she is a lawyer. Um, they are accepted by the College of Notaries of the State, and they have public faith. That means that the notary can certify that something happened. For example, in a, in a work site, if there is a problem, an accident, or something that you want to really evidence, and that nobody can doubt on it, you take your notary public to the place, to the work site, and you can show the crane, the wall, the workers, whatever, and then they will issue a document that can show to a judge or an arbitrator that this is what really happened. And with exception to very specific situations that are unusual, a document like this will be absolutely 
binding and will be an evidence that will be enough for an arbitration judge to decide. Now, of course, so, an American yeah. lawyer would immediately say, are they subject to cross-examination? <laughs> no, no, because the, what they show is what you see in the, in the deed, what do we call the deed? And that's what they saw. Um, maybe they will be in cross-examination if there is any contentious situation regarding that you can prove that he was not there, for example, and there was some other guy, like his clerk or her clerk, being there and he was not there. So maybe to impose some responsibility. But to be honest, notaries in general are very respected and usually because they know that they would lose their license, they behave correctly. So they maybe they can be cross-examined. By the way, this cross-examination is very different in Mexico, but uh, for purposes of liability, but I would say that is uncommon. Let's talk a little bit about the kinds of questions that American contractors seem to ask on most cases? Is there, is there kind of a general list of those questions? There, there are things that, for example, the corporation, the forming of the corporations, the model contracts, the way of dealing, for example, with bonds. Let me tell you a story that is very interesting. In, in general terms, for contract, construction contracts, the industry used to have like to bond 10% of the total cost of the project, 10%. And that was because on the government contract, you have the practice of and, and the law of the 10%. Um, some years ago, when one of the, our clients came in uh, and we said that 10%, they said, are you crazy? We cannot do anything with 10%. So we modified the model contracts for the subcontractors and we included 50%. So at the very beginning, the contract, the subcontractor said, no, this cannot happen, and the bonding companies will not accept it. Uh, at the end, this U.S. client didn't move, and they said, well, this is, these are my requirements. And that situation changed the market. Nowadays, you will see more and more bonding companies bonding for 50% of the project and subcontractors being bonded by 50% of the project rather than what happened. So what I'm trying to tell you is that um, many, in many cases, the incorporation and inclusion of other companies in Mexico modify the terms uh, as they can be done mainly on private contracts. Tell me a little bit about it. I've heard some different viewpoints with regard to the way notice is handled under Mexican uh, construction contract as compared to the way we do it in the U.S. Yes. Well, notice, we don't have all these kind of notice requirements that you have in model contracts. I know that, for example, in the U.S., you have even programs to prepare your notices in advance. In Mexico, first, there are like very few provisions that formally request the notice, although you you really require materially the notice. The second thing is the form or the way that you give the notice. Um, it is not only an email, because although the 
commercial code accepts electronic communication, we still have the issue of judges don't being very receptive on electronic documents. So what you will need in essence is uh, the notice to be sent in original in wet ink and be stamped in original. And that will be what you may require in a future litigation arbitration. That is also something that puts, uh, makes nervous a lot of contractors because they say, well, I cannot send this in an original to everybody. But to be honest, you have to do it if you want to protect and keep your rights preserved. One of the concepts that's basic to private construction in the U.S. are liens. Do you have a system that's similar to the way that we file uh, construction liens? No, we don't have liens. We don't have the mechanic liens, as, as they are known in in U.S. and Canada, don't work here. Of course, you can put a lien as a general lien of a, of a good, as it can be understood, a commercial contracts, but not for the purposes that are established in the U.S. and, and Canada. And, and I think it is very useful because um, subcontractors may be not paid, for example, and they don't have any guarantee that will be paid differently than what the law says. So they have to go and sue. Sometimes these subcontractors are very small, so they don't, they cannot even have money to pay their lawyers for a big amount. Or so this is something that it could be improved because we don't have that system. Tell me a little bit. I, I've heard problems arising in connection with. I think it's called Social Security and say E M A S A S A. Social Security, yes, A M S S. Well, that's an issue. That's, a, I mean, an issue that's a very important matter because every worker on site has to be registered into this, which is IMSS is uh, Mexican Institute of Social Security. And this means that they have to pay a rate or an amount to this entity, which is a federal entity, very powerful, because they provide health to every worker and every employee in the country that is in the private sector. When you speak about construction, there are some fees to tell fees and amounts that have to be paid to the Social Security Institute. And if you don't pay them, for example, as a subcontractor, they can be or they have to be paid by the owner. So you have to be very aware of the clauses that are included in the main contract, in the subcontract, in order to be sure that the subcontractor and the contractor pay their own amounts to the Social Security and the owner not to be affected by those amounts. And this is, can be a really, really burdensome uh, situation if you don't pay attention to this kind of process. I told our listeners when we started that I did want to come back to that sensitive and I think sometimes difficult difficult issue about corruption and yep. the reputation of, of people from outside of Latin America uh, about the the nature of doing business. So let's start a little bit by talking about some American law, like the um, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. That applies mm -hmm. in Mexico, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It applies everywhere. Uh, yeah, and, and since we have the um, U.S. is the first foreign investment investor in Mexico, 
it, we have a lot of exposure or they have a lot of exposure here. And Mexico has its own anti-corruption regulations. We have a system called the National Anti-Corruption System that includes the civil, the, the criminal code, the administrative liabilities code, and to be in addition to this, we have an article in the criminal code that has these long-arm principal provisions in the FCPA, which is, is as a consequence of the OECD treaty or convention. So, yes, we have a lot of regulations. We don't like regulations, by the way. We don't <laughs> like regulations. <laughs> so, so, if it's true the law is on the books, how is it working in real transactions? Well, we have a problem. We cannot say that we, we don't have a problem. We, uh, corruption has been uh, an issue for the last years. And with the new president, in fact, he won using that flag anti-corruption and fighting corruption, and we are tired of what happened. So I think even though there is a, a perception of corruption, and I cannot deny that there is corruption, I think there is more and more consciousness from the private sector that this will not take us to somewhere that is happy. And the public officers are being very, very on the loop of don't doing things wrong. Uh, one of the things that we are suffering is impunity. And we're also suffering like uh, organized crime matters and all, all these things come around. I think today combating for corruption and doing things for integrity are in the everyday conversation. And although I, I cannot say that this is solving the problem, I think more and more people is getting conscious and doing something in their own uh, hands to to improve. So we're working on it. You sound optimistic. I try to sound optimistic. I have been in the fight against corruption for many years, boss, and I think that this fight is never something that will be an absolute success because you know, corruption goes everywhere in the world. But I, I feel that if one people a day realize and are really convinced that not doing things wrong are the right way, I think that is a success. So that's why I'm optimistic. And I always try to say to my students and the clients and my friends that this is a difficult fight, but we cannot wave and we have to fight for it forever and that's why i'm optimistic roberto este es muy importante y interesante muchas gracias para tu tiempo este día thank you very much it was great thank you boss i really enjoyed speaking with you my friend i i hope that this is for use of our american colleagues and i was so happy to be with you thank you for inviting me to be here and please to keep on uh, working together. Thank you again. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. 
For more information about construction law today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.